Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning and giving us such a beautiful Sabbath day. It wouldn't mean so much without knowing you and the hope that we have in you. So now bless us, Lord, as we open the word. May our hearts be open, and may we be guided by you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I have to do this. Uh, I did it in first service, so I have to do it in this service too. You know, last night, some of you may have gotten your Adventist World Radio uh, letter in the mail. If you're not getting it, it might be because uh, they don't know you want it. And they'll know you want it, especially if you send them a little donation. I want to encourage you to do that, Adventist World Radio. Last week, we started a series on the Three Angels' Messages. This morning, I'm picking up on those messages again. But I'm going to take us to a little interlude. I'm actually going to back us up just a little bit. Because this is October 22 and 178 years ago today, thousands and tens of thousands of Millerite Adventists were gathering in farms and churches and other places waiting to see Jesus. And the sweetness of their experience and the bond of their love in Christ was so deep and sweet as they sang and read scriptures and testified they were confident they were going to see Jesus coming on the clouds. And there was nothing between, and they were looking forward to it. Now, we know that the first angel's message goes out with a loud voice. And that loud voice is going to proclaim to the very end, until it can't be loud anymore, it's going to proclaim there's hope in Jesus, and he will soon return. Now, I need you to know, in the Philippines, there was a chicken farmer whose chickens weren't laying eggs very well. And so he went to, can't make this up, it's in writing on the piece of paper in front of me, he went to a chicken psychologist. Yep, don't know how much training he had, but the chicken psychologist said, well, your chickens are stressed. Now, there's a lesson for us in this as people, um, and we should have known this all along because, you know, when David was called to Saul, it's because Saul was stressed. Now, Saul was often stressed because of an evil spirit. Certainly, those evil spirits haven't rescinded in modern days. And so, the chicken psychologist said, play some music for your chickens. And so, he did. He found a station with a strong signal that a lot of people were listening to. It was pumping out rock and roll music, and the chickens laid even less eggs. But then he spun the dial, and he found AWR. And even though it wasn't all music, Cami Oopman was teaching out of the books of prophecy and there was music playing, those chickens started laying eggs wonderfully well. And the chicken farmer started listening too, and he was baptized. Now the good news is, is that the power of AWR goes beyond chickens and chicken farmers because if you've read their letters, you know that one of the leaders of the rebel factions was converted not too long ago. Five-year miracle in the making. But what you don't know is that AWR was invited to the president's palace and they have a memorandum of understanding. It started with uh, Duterte and it's rolled over to one of the Marcos individuals. And in that memorandum of understanding, they have turned over the spiritual formation. Now, I know that word can have a wrong connotation, but it also has a right reality. They've turned over the spiritual formation of all of the soldiers in the Philippine army. They've turned it over to AWR. And what's more so, 
They've invited AWR to set up radio stations on their military bases. Praise the Lord for God touching the hearts of people, working miracles, and many more are going to be worked because of this. Now, when we read in Revelation 14, 6, and 7, that another angel comes down with a loud voice, we need to expect that God himself is going to superintend the work, and it's going to get stronger and stronger as we go. And this morning, I want to show you how prophecy showed us, not readily seen in advance, but clearly seen and looking back, that the disappointment of this day, 100 and almost 80 years ago, was predicted, and there was still work to be done. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open them up to the book of Revelation, chapter 10. Our scripture reading, the story of the mighty angel that comes down and places his foot on the land and on the sea. Revelation chapter 10. Now, I'm going to tell you that tucked just before the start of the first angel's message is this story of the disappointment. Now, I want you to know on October 22, 1844, why so many people were listening. One of the reasons so many people were listening on October 2, 1844, is because Josiah Litch, in studying the seven trumpets, had come to the place where he saw in the work of God's foreknowledge a prediction that the Ottoman Empire, the Empire of the Turks, trumpet number five and six are dealing with the Islamic faith, that great religion, one of those Abrahamic faiths. And he saw in studying this out that the prophecy foretold that the Ottoman Empire would fall on August 11, 1840. Now, he predicted this two years in advance. And if you want to study it out a little bit, I encourage you, get the book called Daniel and Revelation, written by Uriah Smith. And I want to tell you, it's, uh, there are a few chapters where if you're not a geography or a history buff, you'll be looking for your online dictionary or encyclopedia. But I also want to tell you that the book is not that hard to read outside of occasionally a few chapters using a lot of Greek history and Romanish history. But he studied out. Those first four trumpets deal with the fall of the Roman Empire. The next two trumpets deal with the Islamic faith and its affliction on the Christian church. Now, we don't talk about them enough, and we need to go talking about them more. Ellen White gave a special affirmation to the message of this book. And while that is the book, Daniel and Revelation, and while not necessarily absolutely everything in it is exactly right, because we can see a few things different, knowing what it says is a good primer. It's a good cornerstone for understanding the great themes of the Bible. Now, we are historicists in our interpretation. What that means is we believe prophecy can be understood in history and that there's a starting point when it's a time prophecy and there's an end point. And if there's no clear way to get to the starting point, then there's no clear way to know the end point and prophecy has no benefit to us. Now, there are other systems of belief, one called preterism, that believes the prophecies are way too accurate to have been predicted in the future, so they were all written after the fact. Interesting book that you might want to purchase called Daniel in the Critic's Den. If you want some good reading to encourage your faith, Daniel in the Critic's Den. But this morning, I'm here to tell you, we don't believe that this book comes any other way except inspired, that it is the inspired Word of God, all 66 books. 
And we actually believe that God has the ability to see into the future, and he has the ability to share it with us. We've got to dig to understand it. The preterists believe the Bible's way too accurate on its predictions, could not have been written before things came to pass. It's all really just a somewhat falsehood-sanctified history. Then there are the futurists. They don't like where the history points, where the prophecy points, and they don't like some of the people that are called out in the prophetic books. So they say it's all to happen in the future, and you won't know it till it happens. And of course, that's where dispensationalism, which is where most of the evangelicals of our day are, they believe that it's all going to happen in the future. There's a secret rapture. You won't know prophecy until you see people gone. And of course, Hal Lindsey promoted that in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, which actually put some time frames in, and they did not come to pass. Dr. Samuel Bakayoki wrote a good book on the predictions of Hal Lindsey and how they failed. You would think that people would abandon that system of interpretation, which puts it all in the future, but they didn't. Instead, we have 12 more books, the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye. I do not in any way, shape, or form encourage the reading of them. They're basically a novel, a futuristic novel, which will confuse you and do you no good. But if you'd like one good volume to comment, get the book, Daniel and the Revelation, and start reading it slowly. Because when we come to subject matter like the first angel's message and the great disappointment, one of the reasons so many were greatly disappointed is that Josiah Lich predicted August 11, 1840, the Ottoman Empire would fall, and it fell on that day. It wasn't with great fanfare per se, but it was with recognition that it could no longer exist without the power of the West. That was acknowledged, and there were lots of people who noticed that Josiah Lich got this right. And the historicist view, believing you could anchor it in the beginning and you could point it out in the end, the Millerite movement got a huge boost and lots more people were paying attention and the world couldn't ignore it. But there was a flaw woven into the Millerite movement and it was a flaw of misunderstanding. And just like people didn't understand when Jesus came, they were expecting a messianic kingdom, not a suffering servant. There were a few parts that needed to be tweaked and a great disappointment would come first and then the adjustments to understanding later. So those who would like to suggest that Adventism is born out of a mistake, well, I'd like to suggest to you that the Christian era was born out of a mistake as well. And God actually takes our frailties, gives us enough energy and momentum through the infusing of the Spirit and enough understanding about what was right. They knew in 1844 something was going to happen. They thought it would be the cleansing of the world by fire and the executive portion of the judgment. What they didn't know is that there were three phases to Christ's ministry, at least it had not been widely promulgated, and the third phase was about to begin, but it was not a judgment of execution, it was a judgment of understanding. Now mind you, there'll be two resurrections, friends. John makes it clear in his gospel in John chapter 5, verse 38. There'll be a righteous resurrection, there'll be a resurrection of damnation. They'll be separated by a thousand years. Jesus will come, and those that had died in Christ those that have died in that Advent hope, they will see him. But when Jesus resurrects the righteous, the wicked dead stay in the ground. But a thousand years later, there'll be a resurrection to face the executive portion of the judgment. Now, some people have ridiculed the Seventh-day Adventists for suggesting that God doesn't need a thousand years and we don't need a big workup. But I'm here to tell you, God's work knows no haste and no delay. What God is doing is God is allowing those in heaven right now to be assured 
that the reuniting of the family of God on earth with the family of God in heaven is going to be okay, that the real work of redemption has gone forward and there's no rebel roots left in our hearts. That's why, friends, when someone talks to you, be it parent, preacher, teacher, whoever, and you've got to get a real irate response. You've got to get all worked up inside. You might have some rebel roots that are working their way down in the fabric of your being. When you love the truth and you're willing to obey it, when you love Jesus, who is the truth, you don't have to respond with anger to a statement of truth. And you don't have to fight it and beat it into insignificance. Now, while we do that at times, even Peter argued with Jesus, I want you to know this morning that the angels are being allowed to go over the books with Jesus. From 1844 up until now, there's an examination, not to get you out, but to show the legitimacy of bringing you in. For a thousand years, we're going to get to look at the books too. It's going to take a lot longer. You know why? Not because our new minds won't be able to work quickly and not because God needs a thousand years, but there's a process of grieving that's going to go on in the hearts of the redeemed. That thousand-year period of time from the second coming of Jesus until the third coming. Yes, Jesus came as a man and died. That's the first. Jesus will come back as the conquering king. He will receive the righteous. Those that are alive will be slain and wicked will be slain by the brightness of Christ's coming and the wicked dead will sleep. We'll go to heaven where for a thousand years we will judge, Revelation chapter 20. What we will really be doing is a continued work of the angels. And remember, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that you're going to judge the angels? We're going to be looking at those that are lost, both the angelic group, the one-third, and those of the human race, some of which might be related to us, God forbid. And we're going to see why God's judgment has been reckoned in the way it has. And it's interesting. You know, if you studied our Sabbath school lesson, you saw in Isaiah chapter 25, 26, it talks about God wiping tears away from people's eyes. Those tears are going to be wiped away over and over again. When you sit down and you look at a book, you open a file, and you realize somebody's not there, and this is why, and it's going to break people's hearts. It's not a thousand years for investigating as much as it is for a thousand years for understanding and grieving and mourning. And finally, when all those wounds have been healed, Jesus will come again. The new Jerusalem will come down. It will be on planet Earth. The wicked will surround the city to show that their rebellion did not die. They will be resurrected. Their rebellion has not died. Satan will conjure up a new lie. They will surround the city actually thinking they can destroy God because there looks like there's more of them. And when they come up to the city, fire will rain down. Now, we've been entrusted with three messages. The first one is, fear God and give glory to him for the hour his judgment has come. But you need to remember that fear God and give glory to him is from a message, an angel that has the everlasting gospel. So as we saw last week, there is forgiveness with the Lord and deliverance. Therefore, we fear him. You cannot love God the way the generation at the end of time is going to have to love him and actually have any modicum of fear of the abject sort. You're going to have to love this God who actually paid the price to set us free. And that love is going to allow us to stare into the face of hardship and privation and sometimes even death. And we're not going to die for a commandment. We're going to divide for a commandment giver, and we're going to be loyal to the commandments because we're loyal to the commandment giver. But I want you to know something. That first angel's message, which 
began to be announced prior to 1844, that message is in the Bible. The fact that that message would be given before 1844 is in the Bible, tucked between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. But when that message starts to be given, the world's attention is gotten. There is a shaking. October 23 is a shaking. Many people go away, but there are many who decide their experience was real and true, and they keep studying the prophecies. That's what our sermon's about today. But I want you to know something. If you're going to have prophets and be blessed by obedience and their prosperity, you're going to pay a price. What is that price? It's being different. Listen, in 1977, 1978, I became a vegetarian. It was still weird. Kooks were vegetarians in the 70s. Hippies, wackos, societal outcasts. But I want to tell you something today. I didn't bring it out. I have a couple books in the back. I have one called uh, None of These Diseases. I had another one called Blue Zones. I've got another book that I don't have in the back called The Seventh-Day Diet. The funny thing is, is that we went becoming wackos to be at the front of something that's now new age and hip and cool and scientific. But the people, especially in Ellen White's day, I mean, even when I was a young minister, I was dealing with the protein myth. As a matter of fact, when we did our vegetarian cooking schools, we'd show the video, the protein myth. Because all of these food and drug and uh, dietary government agencies had been bought off by the Dairy Association and the Beef Growers Association. And if you didn't get this many grams of protein, well, how could you ever grow up to be a, a man or a woman? It was weird. People used to uh, pay a high price to believe in some of the tenets of Adventism, and they were different. We were in Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults, so we were a cult. Nobody wants to be in a cult. That's a Jim Jones kind of thing, you know, Kool-Aids, Guyana, South America. Some of you are old enough to remember being called a cult. Of course, lots of you around here were called what? Cabbage nippers? A bunch of other things. Why? because you believed in the inspiration of God's prophetic gift, principles of Scripture. Now, the Bible says clearly that if you believe the prophets, you'll be established, that if you believe the prophets, you'll prosper. And I'm here to tell you today, at 58 years of age, I have no regret about my dietary self-chosen limitations that have been put on me by myself. I'd like to live to be like those blue zone people, you know, a blue zone, which is one of those I don't know, five, six, seven communities. Loma Linda's one. I wouldn't mind being like, like Holda Crook, who was climbing Mount Whitney into her late 80s and early 90s. She said, the head's on top, the body's underneath, so I thought it should be in charge. I have no regrets about being different. And Bill and Mike and Todd, my three neighbors, kind of wondering, looking at me a little bit strange. But if you're going to follow the prophets, it means you're going to be out in front of the science, and sometimes it means you're going to be out of favor with other people. But I'm here to tell you today, when Jehoshaphat went out singing with the choir, he said, you trust those prophets, you'll be established. You trust those prophets and you'll prosper. This morning, I just want you to know there's a price. And when they studied the 1844 movement, when they were looking at the end of the 2300 days, the longest time prophecy in the Bible, there will be no more time prophecies. It was the end you're going to see of time. When they studied those 2,300 days and saw they were prophetic days equaling a year, and they saw they began with the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 
And they actually predict, predict the coming of Jesus in there at 490 years, about. And they go all the way down. So we shouldn't be surprised. This longest prophecy captures the ministry of Christ as he comes to be the Lamb. Then he goes to heaven to be our high priest. And then he goes into the day of atonement ministry mode where he's our vindicator, reconnecting us without sin. You see, friends, these things are a sacred trust. So take your Bibles this morning and let's see what the Scriptures had to say about them. The book of Revelation, chapter 10, it was all predicted. God was not caught off guard. Chapter 10, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, verse 1, clothed with a cloud, with a rainbow upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. There's some similarities to Revelation 14 here. And in his hand, he had a little book, which was open. Now, I'm not going to take the time to do it in this service. If you want to go through all the scriptures with me, you can go to the last service online and watch. But I'm here to tell you, in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, he's told to seal up the book. There's only one book in all the scriptures that's been told to be sealed, and it's for the time of the end. That's Daniel. Daniel is full of prophecies. Revelation is full of revelations, and we're about to get one. And it's not that Revelation makes no prophecies, but Revelation explains what was in the book. Not only in Daniel chapter 12, I believe verse 4, does it say to seal up the book, but in verse 7 or 8, it talks about the time, the times, and the half a time. So we see this period of time equaling 42 months or 1,260 days, prophetically years, and it's at the end of that period of time that we expect the book to be opened. If you're following the trumpet progression in the book of Revelation, you know that the sixth trumpet, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, all these things, they're all taking place in that general time frame where those 1260 years are ending. Now, what I'm talking with you about this morning is the fact that when the book was opened, the world's attention was gotten. And whether it was Wolf in Europe or whether it was Miller in America, William Miller that is, the world was attentive. This story was on the front page of all kinds of newspapers, and especially on October 23 or Monday, the day that followed, whatever it was, I don't know what day of the week it was, there was great disappointment. But in his hand is a little book, which the only book dealing with time, which we'll see farther in verse 6, it says, and time shall be no more. The only book closed dealing with time is Daniel. Daniel's open. That's why starting in the early 1800s, you have the proclamation of these prophecies. That's why Miller, Miller could be studying these things, and he's saying, Lord, I'm not going to preach it. I'm not going to talk about it unless you specifically ask me. And within a period of few hours, half an hour, I think it is, his nephew's at the door saying, Uncle wants you to come and preach. And it's the beginning of a mighty juggernaut of prophetic understanding. There is a mighty locomotive of truth that's starting down the tracks in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. And this message is predicted in the book of Revelation, chapter 10, as we're tucked in between trumpet 6 and trumpet 7. The little book was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. When you read, you probably haven't noticed, but when you read in the Old Testament, in the fourth commandment, you see that Jesus talks about the land and the sea in the fourth commandment. You check it out. Deuteronomy does. It's an expression of God's sovereignty. So this angel comes down. He's sovereign over the earth. He has a message for the whole earth. And listen to how he talks. Verse 3. He cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now listen, friends. 
If there's one thing you have to take away from this part of the book of Revelation is that God wanted to be heard. When I was a student at the Soul Wayne Institute, NADI, North American Division Evangelism Institute, it used to be over in the suburbs of Chicago, LaGrange. I lived there with my wife and my little baby. On Sabbath afternoons, we'd go to the free park occasionally, the free zoo, Lincoln Park. And you know, at the end of the day, the lion knew something. He knew when all the human beings were gone, he got supper. And I want to tell you, it doesn't matter where you were in the park and for a great distance outside of the park, you could hear that lion roar. And I want to tell you, there's a lion of the tribe of Judah and there's a lion that goes about seeking for somebody to devour, a Christian he prefers. And I want you to know the battle of the end is the battle of two lions. And when Jesus speaks, not only does the lion get the world's attention, but the seven thunders peal. While we don't know what's in the seven thunders, we might have that revealed to us at some point in time in the future. I don't know because John was told, don't write what the thunder said. But we believe in the prophetic gift. They keep the commandments of God, this says up here, and have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That prophetic work is not just for one writer 100 years ago. That prophetic work is for every preacher. And really that prophetic work is for every parent and teacher. We believe in the power of the prophecies to edify, to encourage, to console, to rebuke with all long-suffering through the Word of God. But when this angel comes down and he places his foot on the land and his foot on the sea, it's a worldwide interest that the roaring lion and the seven thunders want to have. Verse 5, then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. So there's going to be a witness here. It's a testimony time. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the earth and the things in it. We've got the same language from the first angel's message. And the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there would be, some of your versions say, delay no longer. That's not a good translation. Time no longer. The authors of some of these newer translations had no perspective that Daniel and Revelation were like hand and glove, that one explained the other. They didn't have the perspective of the opening of some of these things for human understanding in regards to prophecy. It's a clear statement, as the King James Version says, that they're coming to the end of the 2300 days. Prophetic time is coming to its close. Verse 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. So, What's that tell you? It's not that there is no more time. It's that prophetic time is over because there, are still, there is still the seventh trumpet to do its work. So when it says time no more, it's not talking about there won't be any more days, weeks, months, and years. What it's talking about, the fact, is that the end of the prophetic timeline, the longest prophecy, is up. But there's still a seventh trumpet to come. That's what you and I are living in. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Now, we are going to turn over to the book of Ephesians. Take your Bibles out, get your phones out, however you prefer to do it. I highly encourage paper over electronic because there's a better memory dynamic associated with where you saw something on the page, at least for some of you. And I want to look at what this mystery is because the mystery is almost finished. All right? What is that mystery? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things. Go back, if you would, 
Actually, I like verse 11. Let's finish to there, all right? It says, and also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, predestined according to his purpose, who works for all things after the counsel of his will. Go up to verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons, sons through Jesus Christ to he himself. What I want you to all know is that God ordained from before the foundation of the world that what was frittered away could be had back. It would be had back through the mystery of the gospel. Turn over to Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verse 19. It says, Ephesians 6, 19, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the what? The gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Turn back over to chapter 3, same book, Ephesians there's probably nowhere in the New Testament that talks about the mystery of godliness as much as this book. Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verse 3, says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote in brief, skip down to verse 6, to be specific, that the gospels are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. What matters so much about Revelation 10, as you turn back there, is that we're coming to the end of the opportunity associated with the mystery of God's love. There is a gospel message that's got to get out. We haven't made it yet to the third angel's message or the second angel's message, but we know in the first angel's message, it's an everlasting good news message about the grace of God, but there is an end point coming. And in Revelation chapter 10, we have prophesied this great worldwide understanding of prophecy and it's interpreted to be the coming of Christ on October 22, 1844, but it's not. Verse 8, then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking to me, saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book, and he said to me, so he's going to get a warning. That's what Revelation 10 was. And it's also an encouragement. Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. Now, you might be tempted not to eat it knowing that, because if a moment on the lips and a lifetime on the hips is true, maybe joy on the tongue, but pain in the belly is another one to give us cause and pause. Pause and caution. Take it and eat it. It's going to be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to be hard. I took the little book, verse 10, out of the angel's hand, and I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. The last verse of this chapter is especially for us. Because for all of those who endured scorn and ridicule and stayed true to studying the prophecies, some of which we'll talk about tonight at our Vespers, whether it's Leonard Wood Hastings or Silas Guilford, all these different men and women who endured the scorn of the first great disappointment, misunderstanding it was not the final appointment, but it was a transition of ministry from Jesus in only a mediatorial role into the final phase before the mystery of the gospel ended of revealing to the unfallen worlds. But interestingly enough, in this interlude between trumpet six and trumpet seven, the angel says, 
you must prophesy again. That's what the eating in the book was about. Jesus himself talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, finding these words. It's a common metaphor. And as the Seventh-day Adventist church emerged over a period of time, along with other churches, by the way, some of which have slipped into oblivion, but one which has strengthened, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now, I want to tell you, if you're going to believe the prophets and obey them, you're going to be established and you're going to prosper. But because the devil hates the prophets and he's a lion too, he's going to roar. We've seen him roar over the last two years. Anybody that wanted to be different was pummeled and intimidated. Anybody that wanted to stand for what they believed was liberty of conscience was derided. This morning what I want you to know is that we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have more reason to believe than anybody else has ever had on the face of the planet. And I want to tell you that those prophecies that talk about a deadly wound and that wound being healed, they're coming true before our very eyes. And those prophecies that talk about a lamb-like beast that quits talking like a lamb and starts acting like a dragon, they're coming true in front of our very eyes. And the same prophetic uniqueness that marked us as a little bit different in the beginning is going to mark us as majorly different in the end. Last week I mentioned that, that video put out by the Vatican called The Letter. Some of you haven't watched it yet. You need to watch it because what it describes is the next great tsunami of conformity. And it's going to be in the name of social pragmatism and blessing and benefit for the earth and for our future survival that we all get on board and that we surrender the dynamics of autonomy and independence and liberty in the name of the well-being of the whole race. It's up to six point some million views and it's only been out for about a week or two. I'm encouraging you to watch it because some think the nature of the papacy has changed. In the book Great Controversy and Other Places, one writer suggests that it has not changed. As benign and good-willed as it may appear to be, to lead the way, because now, you know, friends, it's not just enough that science says it. As I watch some of these videos, and I watched a video, a documentary on the maker of that video, the letter, the man makes it very clear it won't work without a moral imperative. Do you hear what I'm saying? A moral imperative. Write the word church in the blank. We're standing in a place in time where other things that have been prophesied are going to come true. It's not normal for the Pope, who was a religious leader, to talk to the sum total of the governing body of the United States as he did about five years ago. We're living in a moment in time when you need to know that we're going to see the beast show his teeth. You need to know there's a Sunday law coming. You need to know there's a shaking. You need to understand that some of these things prophesied in the future will happen. You need to know when the Sunday laws are announced, that's the time for us to move out of the cities and derive ourselves a little space dependence or independence. You need to pick up the book Great Controversy and start reading it again because there is a more sure word of prophecy. And if ever there was a moment to be confident in the Adventist message, not being picked off by anti-Trinitarians or somebody else, we're supposed to be going forward with this message of liberty before the curtain comes down on the mystery of godliness and the invitation of grace. I'm here to tell you, along the way, 
Being able to be your own person in the name of Jesus is an absolute life skill. Some had to come out of great loss to enter this great faith. They gave up jobs and family members, even wives or husbands. They paid a price where there was some pain. But they knew the prophets were right. And they established their life on the establishment of security and prosperity. And in time, it's come to us. They didn't even used to think you could reverse those things like hardening of the arteries, atherosclerosis. Wish it would have been a Seventh-day Adventist who said, well, let's try that out. Let's try that really unique diet. In the end, it's almost like we're being left behind. Not to be, friends. We are people of prophecy. And I want to assure you, the prophecies are coming true. On this day, 178 years ago, they gathered because of prophecy. On the next day, they gathered because of prophecy because they understood something was wrong. But they knew the sweetness of their experience was right. They knew the presence of Christ in their heart was legitimate. They knew their experience had been true even if their interpretation was off. It wasn't false. It was just off. And I'm here to tell you, when higher medicine was impressed that there was a greater message and that judgment was more than just executive. It was investigative. An amazing message. Seventh-day Adventists have added nothing to the body of theological belief except the sanctuary doctrine. Other people believe when you're dead, you're dead. Other people believe in the Sabbath. Other people believe in a literal, visible coming of Christ. Other people believe in the manifestation of gifts. But Seventh-day Adventism, through the great disappointment, brought an understanding of the theology of a sanctuary made in heaven, not pitched by hands, a true one, not a type, not a symbol. And so the sandbox story of salvation, Christ in the outer courtyard is the Lamb, Christ in the holy place is a mediator, and Christ in the most holy place on the day of atonement is vindicating judge. That's what we've brought. And that's why there was a disappointment. And I want you to know something. We only have one thing to be afraid of, two that we should forget God's leading in our past and our teachings. That's the only thing Ellen White said to be afraid of. Because if you're involved in the great giving of this message and you know the teachings, then you're watching them go forward and the giving of the message is transforming you as you go with it. Friends, I'm planning to follow this gospel prophetic train all the way to the terminal in heaven. I'm planning to walk with Jesus all the way. And if along the way, you or I have to stand apart a little bit, that's the price of profits and prosperity. But I want you to know something. Jesus had to stand alone to fill the, fulfill the prophecies of the 2,300 days. He came on time. He died on time. He ascended to heaven. And in 1844, he moved into the final work of vindicating and restoring right on time. The angels are investigating. God already knows. And someday, we're going to see his face, the one who went alone to the cross, hung naked on the cross, cried out for thirst on the cross, wanted a little word of affirmation, which he got from a dying thief. Praise the Lord for the dying thief. He rejoiced to see in that day the fountain. Friends, get the book, Daniel, Revelation. Get the book, God Cares, the two volumes. Get out the great controversy. Turn off Facebook. I know it's not a television to turn off and on. Take a little fast. If ever there is a day to do some serious examination, 
It's on the 178th anniversary of the great appointment, which was disappointing, but the appointment remains. I'm inviting you tonight to be here at our special Vespers because none of us know enough about church history and none of us have encouraged enough in this great Advent movement, which is about to speak like a loud lion and it's going to get the attention of the world again and you don't want to miss out and you don't want to be left behind. Let's be willing to pay the price of being different and let it be whatever it has to be to someday belong in the fellowship of the angels in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.